Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. 15 years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio open source. And thank you. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. The literary phenomenon Harold Bloom, who died this week at 89, made a singular career listening for the ecstatic music of the human mind from four centuries of English literature. Compendious and controversial, Harold Bloom is not yet to be measured and maybe never to be explained. The champion reader who, at top form, could see, absorb, and remember a thousand pages an hour, who had all of Shakespeare and Milton Whitman, too, and the American moderns on the tip of his tongue. His threefold test of greatness in a book or a poem was aesthetic splendor, intellectual depth, and wisdom. You don't have time for the rest, he would say. Professor Bloom was teaching at Yale 65 years to the very end, and it's the teaching part we want to remember and share this hour. You're going to hear him with his beloved undergraduates and with me, his belated pupil, in radio conversations over the last 20 years. I was a late bloomer when he had entered his own late period, a bit of a performer, a celebrity, though he liked to fancy himself as an outcast king of the literary conversation. Our friendship took off in 2003 at the 200th birthday of Ralph Waldo Emerson. I asked the Sage of New Haven to help me with the late Sage of Concord, Massachusetts. Professor Bloom went straight to the vibrant core of things. In a dark time of his own, he said, he had read a million words of Emerson's journals and found, as he put it, the best and oldest part of myself. Indeed, it is the God within that speaks. I love Emerson because in 64, and when a year later in the middle of the journey at 35, I fell into the deepest depression of my life. Mm. I read and read and read Emerson morning, noon, and night, and all night long, and I read all through the journals, and I felt that every phrase he had ever written, he was speaking directly to me, and he'd written it for me. And I still feel that way. And of course, this is pure Emersonian doctrine, because think of that magnificent sentence early on in that extraordinary rhapsody, self-reliance, in every work of genius, we recognize our own rejected thoughts. They come back to us shining with a certain alienated majesty. Isn't that wonderful? It's fantastic. And my own definition of reading, which I take straight out of Emerson, even though this is not his wording, what reading really is, is coming upon it, recognizing it, and taking back what is already your own. Harold Bloom loved Emerson not least for discovering Walt Whitman, the real fountainhead of American writing. What can one say? The overwhelming thing about Walt Whitman is the extraordinary combination of absolute originality on the one hand and the amazing degree of intimacy that he calls out for in his reader. I cannot think of anyone in the entire history of poetry before or after Walt Whitman who could actually write the following in a little poem called of 1856 to you, whoever you are. Whoever you are, I place my hand upon you that you may be my poem. That's stunning. Whoever you are, I place my hand upon you that you may be my poem. He's always drawing you very close to him. Nobody else does that. Whitman is, Whitman is the heart of American literature. And more than that, I think he's the heart of the American character. 
He's the heart of our hope for what he calls democratic vistas, which God knows we don't have now. There's not much Whitmanian left in the public sphere. Professor Bloom said he would invite me back to New Haven when he got around to teaching Moby Dick again, and he did. It was my introduction in 2011 to Harold Bloom's Herman Melville. Harold, it's amazing to me we've never talked about the great Melville or the great Moby Dick. On the way to class, set it in your Bloomian framework. Here are the two, I'm convinced, to this moment, greatest figures in the entire history of our national literature. These are the two great American books, Leaves of Grass in its various editions, but particularly the 1855 first edition, the one hailed by Ralph Waldo Emerson. But side by side with that would be the very best of Melville, the amazing, the miracle of a book, Moby Dick, almost flawless, I think. But here are these two great figures then. They're born within a few months of one another, 1819, I think. They die very close on each other, 1892 or so. They spend their lives in much the same ambience, fundamentally New York City. Moby Dick is published in 1851, the great first edition of Leaves of Grass in 1855. They must have passed each other on the sidewalks of Manhattan hundreds of times, but neither of them ever acknowledges having run into the other. So here are you know these two greats. I don't know what to call them. They're not ships, whales, <laughs> leviathans, passing in the night and never taking note of the other. And yet I can no longer read one without reading the other, which is why I decided to put Moby Dick into this uh, discussion group. As I say, the first meeting that will be today. So let us start... Why Ahab? Why has Melville done this? He's not a hero villain. He's, he's a great Promethean hero, so far as I'm concerned. And I dislike uh, so much of Melville's scholarship, which says we're to regard him as a very wicked fellow. Yes, no doubt, but so what? I mean, he's so sublime, he's so grand that, yes, he does take everybody down to destruction, but without that destruction, no book. And without the book, where is our literature? No, so he is, he is a magnificent figure. Over the years, our conversations roamed from books to sports to jazz. Harold, I've been living inside this book of yours, The Anatomy of Influence. I miss the old title, The Living Labyrinth, partly because it's so perfect for the way your mind works. All that stuff inside talking to itself. Pardon me, old noble Chris, is it not the way that your mind works also? Well, with much well, less in All it. of us literary cultural types are labyrinthine in our complexities, aren't we? Well, yes. And I even... dare say that your marvelous body of auditors who will listen to this in some form or another after you have edited it down, I dare say they are labyrinthine in their complexities also. They're, they're sinuosities, you might want to say. Absolutely. But most of us are thinking of the names of rock and roll drummers or baseball players or boxers from the 1930s or something. You, well, you I, have... also, I also, as a wretched Yankee fan, because I think they're awful this year, I can take you back throughout Yankee history. Every minor league creature who showed up as a reserve infielder, I can tell you all about. 
This is not a good year. For the, the Red Sox are going to beat us by about 15 games. Let's <laughs> hope. Let's hope. They're finally in a group. I don't hope it. I loathe it. The fascist Red Sox, I always call them. Why? <clears throat> if you want biography or autobiography or memoir, at the age of six in 1936, my splendid Uncle Sam Kaplan took me to my first big league game in Yankee Stadium. It was on my birthday, so I was six years old. There was a rookie in left field. He switched to center field the next year named Joseph Paul DiMaggio. And like all potential him. Yankee fans, I said, oh, my God, look at him. <laughs> By the way, he has inspired my life to a considerable degree, even though he wasn't obviously a very charming human being from everything one knows about him and his relation to poor old Marilyn and so on. Baseball made an easy analogy for Bloom's most famous book, The Anxiety of Influence, and the idea that writers are formed by a contest with their elders and betters. I asked him once if the poet's distress growing up was much different from, say, Mickey Mantle's awareness that he was playing at Yankee Stadium in Joe DiMaggio's center field. No difference at all, said Harold Bloom. Go back uh, to your papa in the ballpark, well, in the Bronx. What? No, no, that, that was my Uncle Sam. He took me to Yankee Stadium. Also, he influenced my life because I remember one day when I was about 10 or 11 and was spending all my time reading Hart Crane and Shakespeare and John Milton and Walt Whitman, you know, you know, the poets who mattered. And he said to me, Herala, which is what they called me, what are you going to do with all this when you grow up? <laughs> I think it was about 11 at the time. What are you going to do with this? I said, well, I don't know. I, I, you know, I just want to read poems and talk about them and I hope write about them. I hadn't written about them as yet. Harold, I was going to ask you, what would your father make of you? What you have mastered, what you have learned, what you have Papa written? Papa had no idea. He said to me one day, in Yiddish, he said, what are you doing? What, what do you intend to be, a malamed? You know, Yiddish for a school teacher. I said, well, you know, again in Yiddish, you know, yeah, Papa, but on a somewhat higher level, I hope. He said, no, 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 he said, anything better than that. If you don't want to be a doctor and a lawyer, as you should be, you're wasting all this education. Better you should be a pharmacist than a malamed. <laughs> so I don't think he would have been much moved or much interested or much impressed. Would he understand how you did it? How no. you mastered that material? My dear fellow, I don't understand how I did it. The ultimate truth about me, which I think I would say only to Chris Lydon, because notoriously I love the man, and I believe you somewhat reciprocate my fierce affections. I do, I do. I have no idea how it all happened. The post-word jazz revival, the so-called bebop era, was another Bloom fascination. He heard genius poetry in another language. I finally had the satisfaction of introducing my favorite jazz man, Bud Powell, to Hart Crane because I felt there was deep affinity. I, I gave him a copy of the collected poems of Hart Crane and he read it. And we discussed the Broken Tower and I told him how much his Un Poco Loco, especially in that great three-take recording of it. Yes. I heard him play Un Poco Loco, but just one take. But there's Max that great Roach recording. The Max on the percussion, including that. And uh, Curly Russell, great bass player. <laughs> Just the three of them. Uh, Harold but is that, a, that, that is one of the monuments of jazz in Poco Loco, particularly with all three versions. Uh, the, the way it builds and accumulates it. And I love the way, after the end of the second version, you can hear on the old uh, Blue Note recording, Powell's voice huskily saying, 
one more. <laughs> he didn't like it the first time. He didn't like the second take. But the third take, the third take, you just feel, as in the broken tower, that everything is breaking apart. You know, that the mind has reached its limits and uh, there's nothing for it to do but disintegrate. That the bells are breaking down their tower, as I think Powell's gift was too great for Powell. Harold Bloom, I cannot thank you never enough. Mind, never mind, I love you madly, as you know. Coming up, friendship with Harold Bloom, up close with the poet Peter Cole. This is Open Source. Harold Bloom. High priest of literature for more than half a century, the inescapable opinion maker, even after he became, as he said, with some pleasure, notorious. His personal friends were more important than his literary feuds. Peter Cole was one of the closest over many years. The poet and translator who teaches at Yale. Peter Cole, like Harold Bloom, is adept in the literary tradition of Jewish mysticism, Kabbalah. He spoke with us from New Haven the day after Harold Bloom's funeral. There were many Harolds. There was Harold the the Genius and Harold the Notorious, and uh, there was Harold the Oracle and Harold the Terrible, and I uh, knew them all quite well and sometimes too well. But the Harold that mattered most for me, the Harold that made an impression on me at the very beginning and who stayed with me to the very end and is still with me, was Harold the uh, Insatiable. Mm. His hunger for... uh, Poetry was matched really only by his hunger for engaged human company and for what he always called the blessing or more life. And that was on the page uh, and in person. And that extended to, um, obviously, to friendship. And uh, being with him was was exhilarating. He paid attention like no one uh, I've ever met. Uh, He had a reputation as a kind of monologist, and he certainly could deliver those monologues. But as I got to know him, I would see, you know, his eyes were taking in the room all the time. He would see people around him, and uh, he was just one of the most alert and attentive people I've ever met, uh, clearly as a reader, uh, but also as a, as a reader of people. He remembered everything about you, your education, your religious disposition or not, what you knew of the Kabbalah, uh, <laughs> your parents, your sports. I mean, yeah, explain and was, the memory. Yeah, Can yeah. anybody explain the memory, Peter? You know, when I first met him, I had heard about this memory, and I, I suppose I didn't really believe it. I sort of I thought the whole thing was sort of hyperbolic and uh, part of the legend. And then he would you'd be sitting around the table having dinner or sherry. Uh, suddenly, a poem would come into his head, and his eye he would close his eyes, and so you could see them. His eyes would roll back into his head first, and then he would close his eyes and begin to recite. And you know, you would think a line or two would come out, or maybe a stanza, and it would just go on and on and on. And I've also seen YouTube videos of Harold when he was younger, and his memory was even more phenomenal. And it was truly terrifying. He would go into a kind of trance and recite and uh, talk about possessed by memory. That was another kind of uh, possession there. And it really was almost too much to bear. Um, But yeah, he had that and he had it to the very end. Try to size up where he stands in the history of, of the literature. I think he is our Samuel Johnson. 
Um, Meaning? Everything he touches becomes interesting. It becomes interesting by virtue of his style, his, uh, his prose style. The, you feel the mind at work through a sentence in, in a way that gives off a kind of light. And no matter what he's talking about, and so that, that's in the language itself, right? And then there's what he's actually saying. Both the the fact that he completely reconfigured the idea of um, what's important uh, in, in the canon, uh, what should be read uh, with regard to English poetry and also American poetry. Uh, that's what he got a lot of flack for, of course. To my mind... It wasn't so much the opinions that uh, that he ended up with. It wasn't the conclusions. There's a wonderful dance critic named Edwin Denby was, um, who said about dance criticism, opinions are just one way of doing it. Right? It's the observation mm. that leads to the opinions. And I think it's uh, while everybody focuses on Harold's conclusions and his opinions, who are who are the the strong poets, and uh, you know who is in the canon or out. I don't think that's what really interested Harold. I mean, he did that. He, you know, that was that was part of the um, what helped him sell books in a certain way. But it was the argument, along the wrestling with the text. I mean, the text was a kind of angel that Harold was wrestling with all the time for that blessing, and he his prose gives off a kind of light uh, that's unlike any other prose I know. So that. And I know many, many writers who deeply disagree with him about the conclusions that he drew, but who read him again and again for that light that uh, that the prose gave off. Which and it became a kind of lamp for me. The the prose became a kind of lamp that lit the way back to life, mm-hmm. back to what mattered, uh, not just in literature, but you know in what literature was for, which is to tell us something about life. I can't, I can't really speak to um, the larger issues of uh, his place in literature, except to say that virtually everyone I know, even people who you know, hold tremendous, are, are angry with Harold for his conclusions, all over the world I meet people like this, Everyone acknowledges the the, um, the the dimension, the the greatness of him as a writer and as a mind, the capaciousness of the mm. sensibility, um, the largeness of heart. Uh, very few people talk about, you know, I was just reading a bunch of the uh, articles in the New York Times and various other places. No one mentions Harold's heart. That was, a, you know, he, he had con, um, congestive heart failure. Uh, <laughs> because his heart worked, you don't want to get into too much into the illness and metaphor, but that man's heart worked like no other heart I have ever encountered. Mm. Uh, it was an informed heart uh, that just beat with uh, with a kind of ferocity. That in, is, was part of the prose style. He had a kind of Johnsonian prose style. I remember... Um, times when we were over at the house and a an editor would call and say, uh, Harold, um, you know, I, I understood that they were asking for a blurb from a book. He had owed them a blurb or promised them a blurb. And they were in a hurry to, you know, to get the blurb and get the publicity out. And Harold would say, no, no, I need, I need another week. I haven't yet finished the book. And they would press him and he would say, okay, okay, are you ready? And then he would deliver the most complex, long sentence or paragraph off the top of his head, beautiful prose. And, you know, that just flowed from him naturally. 
And he wrote that way, too. I've seen he used to show me his notebooks. He rarely changed a word, also like Johnson. It just, it just was in him as a, a kind of genius. Um, Speak to the project itself of seeing literature as one gigantic organism. You said he had a photographic memory, which he did, but it was also an organic memory. He was, the lines popped up of their own energy. But the, the larger project, the larger project of Behind the Canon was imagining that Emily Dickinson was learning from Shakespeare, from Sappho, from Walt Whitman, from a million people, that they were all in this endless, eternal conversation even before you ranked it, you understood it as a, an endless tradition. Was that a sound idea, do you think? And was, could anybody but his mind sort of manage it? I think it is a sound idea, and I think it's an idea um, you know, that other people ha- have certainly had. I think it's the way that writers think. Harold's first and foremost a writer. E.M. Foster has that famous characterization, description of literature as uh, you know, all, the, all the writers of, um, from all languages and all literatures as working in the reading room of a great library all at once. Mm. Uh, e- Ezra Pound, for uh, whom Harold had uh, very little patience and we had many arguments about Pound, um, said all ages are contemporaneous. And uh, that was true for Harold. I mean, he when people talk about uh, the anxiety of influence and in general his ideas about influence, they again focus on Harold's way of seeing the the relationality of writers as a kind of agon, a kind of struggle, a kind of battle for both uh, the space to, to be, uh, for a kind of freedom of expression, for a kind of independence from their literary forebears, and, you know, a kind of Freudian um, violence that's being done. And all that's true, but that's not the only way he saw it. He saw it very much like you described, as you described it, that he was constantly looking for these hidden lines of relationship that were also lines of affinity. They weren't simply lines of, uh, of conflict and contention. Mm-hmm. So a- absolutely, he would make connections. I-, I mean, my mind certainly works like that, but my range is, you know, is just so much smaller. And I could have the conversations with him about the things I knew, but he, se- he knew everything, it seemed. You know, I like to think that I know of, at least of, every important poet, including minor poets, uh, in the history of American literature and maybe English literature, period. It doesn't mean that I've, um, I've read them all, but I think, I'd like to think that I've heard of them all. And yet I would regularly hear from Harold names that had never crossed my path before. <laughs> um, one of them was, uh, this was a couple of years ago, the name uh, Samuel Hoffenstein came up. And I said, who? And he said, uh, you don't know. He said, I think, child, you don't know who Samuel Hoffenstein is? And I said, sorry, Harold, I don't. <laughs> and then he, he began to recite a poem by Samuel Hoffenstein, uh, who is most famous in his eyes for having written a parody of T.S. Eliot that he called The Moist Land. <laughs> and... Um, and then I went and did a little, you know, looked up, Googled uh, Samuel Hoffenstein, and it turned out that he was one of the most popular American poets in the late 1920s. And his first book, which called, was called Poems in Praise of Practically Nothing, had sold 60,000 copies in wow. 1929. Yeah, Poetry. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah. And, you know, so it was a, the surprises were endless. And Hoffenstein was a kind of, um, he was a writer of light verse about heavy topics and, you know, theological things. And, um, you know, the Lord is in the sea and sky. The Lord is in the rose and root. The Lord is in my shirt and tie, my dentist and my either boot. Um, you know, all these kinds of things that would be on the level of Dickinson and Whitman and the Kabbalah. And, you know, all these things would come together. There, there weren't always in his conversation the kind of hierarchies that existed uh, in his writing and in the books that, that tend to get the most attention. Peter, speak of the metaphysician in Harold, his deep engagement with Jewish mysticism, the Kabbalah, his notion of the daimon. Yeah, I mean, you're right that he wrote about it increasingly as he got older. The sort of last phase of his writing life was... Uh, has been described as a kind of, you know, the, the religious period where he's interested in the American religion and he's also writing a great deal about uh, Jewish writers, uh, both Kabbalistic writers and Freud and Kafka and others and, and modern American Jewish poetry. But he really had that from the very, very beginning. I think at the beginning, you know, as he was establishing himself as a, as a serious uh, scholar and literary critic in a very waspy American university climate of the 1950s, that wasn't the kind of thing that he would be talking about first. You know, he had to establish his reputation as a critic and scholar of romanticism. And it was only gradually in the I guess, late 60s, 70s especially, that the Jewishness start, started to come out in, in terms of his writing. But it came out, you know, with a, with a tremendous ferocity um, even then. So that's, we're talking about... 50 years of writing about Jewish things. And there is a, a way, and apart from his trilogy uh, uh, about influence, the anxiety of influence, the map of misreading, poetry and repression, Harold as a Jewish writer is a, is a major figure for me, and not just for me. I know many, many people. Uh, what does that mean? He is somebody who is constantly trying to take a tradition that, the normative version of which is perceived as somehow being kind of frozen and stultified in certain ways or institutionalized. And he is trying to both wake it up and find within it that blessing, that, that the places of, you know, uh, profound intensity, not just anarchism, as some people say, but um, where there is a an, an energy that is not containable, that's not containable by the conventions of institutionalized Judaism. And that's what drew him um, to Kabbalah first, because, and you mentioned the kind of ancient sources before life, the, the in a nutshell, and nuts are very important for Kabbalah uh, symbolically, but um, Kabbalistically, the Bible, for example, is just one manifestation and actually a kind of cosmically late manifestation of the truth. And uh, it's a manifestation that people, most people will be able to understand. But what's inside the Bible, you know, if you crack it open through strong interpretation and then a kind of literary interpretation, it's what's inside the Bible where the real powerful light and, and lessons are. And uh, that's what Kabbalistic literature did and, and believed. And that's what drew Harold to that counterfactual and uh, contrarian or reading the tradition against the grain. And so he's, he's mm. constantly... Um, applying that model of Kabbalistic reading to other texts. After the Poetry and Repression, he published a book called Kabbalah and Criticism, which is an astonishing book. You know, he took some flack when it was published because 
it was it was cut off from the let's say sociological uh, an anthropological context in which Kabbalistic works were created in the 13th century in Spain and 14th century and 15th century and in other parts of the Ottoman Empire or in parts of the Ottoman Empire. But Harold was looking for the for a kind of core, for a kind of structural core or paradigm that would be useful to him as a reader of all texts. And I recently reread that book and I was just shocked. I reread it after having I know a fair amount about this subject, and I was astonished at the insight, the kind of leverage that Harold managed to get uh, through reading, often in translation. I mean, he, he read Hebrew, but he did not read Aramaic, um, and, you know, his Hebrew was, um, it wasn't something he could read easily by the time he was an adult. Mm. Uh, Yiddish, he was much more conversant with, but it didn't matter. He would penetrate this incredibly difficult material. There was something, you know, there was a kind of atomic nuclear physics at work in his reading of these things. Peter, it's kind of amazing that a scholar of this depth in his last years is looking for light and lessons in scriptures. What would you say he found in his last period? Well, one of his editors sent around uh, after the announcement of his death, sent around a, uh, a quote from a book in manuscript that Yale University Press will be publishing. And the, it ended with something like, rise at dawn and read what matters as soon as you can. Hmm. Which is a kind of gloss on the Jewish tradition there. In, in the rabbinic tradition, there are several writers who say this, rise at dawn like a lion. And it means like a lion for worship. But the word for worship in Hebrew simply is the same word as to work. And Harold was like that. He would rise with this kind of, you know, as I said, the sort of hunger and this insatiable quality. He would get up early, very early in the morning and just begin reading right away. And it was never for professional advancement. It was That was the farthest thing from his mind. It was always for content. It was always to crack open that nut, that shell, and find what was inside it. Harold Bloom himself was a non-believer, he said, but nonetheless fascinated by religion. He made waves on the question of who wrote the Hebrew Bible on the occasion of his book 20 years ago titled Jesus and Yahweh, the name's divine, I asked him whether he wrote on Scripture as a literary critic or a wannabe theologian. No, I don't think it's any of those things. I think that every distinction ever made between a supposedly sacred literature and a supposedly secular literature, that these distinctions are invidious, false, and misleading. They are, in fact, political. They are institutional. Shakespeare's King Lear seems to me no more or less a sacred text than the prophet Isaiah or, for that matter, the epistles of St. Paul. Coming up, students and colleagues of Harold Bloom David Bromwich, Rosanna Warren, and Jennifer Lewin, they're talking about the varieties of literary enchantment. This is Open Source. 
On call-in radio, two decades ago, Harold Bloom cast himself as a weary old champion of the high culture. And he was a favorite of listeners even when he put them down. Here was Harold playing Harold on our old show, The Connection, in the year 2000. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is The Connection, the how to read and why connection with the sage of New Haven, Harold Bloom, Sterling Professor of Literature at Yale, and one of the most encyclopedic and influential readers alive, the Samuel Johnson of our time. The legend is that if you toss Harold Bloom one line from Milton's Paradise Lost, he will recite the rest of the epic poem from memory. Feel free to test him, connection listeners. What should be the hope of our reading lives? Well, when we are young, uh, we read freely and we range ideally in all directions. It does seem as though there will always be world enough and time, but on the 11th of July, I will turn 70, and increasingly I realize that I read against the clock. And perhaps in the longest perspective, we all of us read against the clock. Mm -hmm. Uh, If we all knew that we were going to have not the biblical threescore and 10 or 75 years, but say 150, then you know I would never have engaged in arguments on behalf of the traditional Western canon. I would have said, fine, there will always be time enough But in the end, uh, you really must choose. Uh, There is only so much time. There is so much really astonishing, really vital literature from all traditions in all languages that you could read from morning until night uh, for 75 years and never uh, come to the end of it. And so, as I say throughout this book, as I have been saying passionately, throughout my life, no doubt making many enemies in the course of it, but one should make enemies uh, in such a cause. There is no time for mediocrity. 1-800-423-8255 makes the how to read and why connection. Howard is calling from Randolph, Massachusetts. Good morning, Chris. Good morning, morning, Howard. Bloom. Good morning. I don't fully understand why people are advised to read the so-called great works, and I'm hoping Professor Bloom can help me understand it. Most of my reading is in the sciences, and particularly in the behavioral sciences, because I find that reading fascinating and just far more compelling than made-up stories of times long ago and far away. You know what you make me remember? Uh, The late W.H. Auden once wrote an essay on art and Christianity in which he deprecated mere literature in relation to Christianity. And I remember writing a review of it and saying, ah, yes, poems are made by fools like me and Homer, Blake, Shakespeare, and Milton, but only God can make a tree. You and I are in such profound disagreement that I really don't think we have much to say to one another. Okay, and an eloquent explanation in itself. Thank you, sir. 1-800-423-8255. Miriam is on the line. Hi, how are you all doing? Just fine, Miriam. Welcome. I was actually wanting to say that I mean, I'm an avid reader. I live with six other people who are also avid readers. And um, I just wanted to say that it's not necessarily what you read, but, but talking about it and being able to, to compare notes with other people on the same book, maybe, or get their feelings on the topics at hand. 
I do think it matters a great deal what you read. I think that uh, reading Shakespeare is a very different and ultimately much more valuable experience than reading anyone else except for a handful of his peers like Dante and Cervantes. And I respect you. Again, I, I don't think there's much to discuss. I mean, to say that it does not matter what we read um, simply seems to me wrong. But I was a little discouraged by your first two callers. I, you know, to think well and clearly in any field, you must cultivate memory because thinking without memory is simply impossible. The question then becomes, what is it that you remember? And uh, the old Arnoldian adage still seems to me true. It is best to read and recollect and therefore have stored in your memory the very best that has been thought and written and said. That seems to me beautifully obvious. Mm. David Brombush was first an undergraduate and then a Ph.D. student of Harold Bloom's and then his successor as Sterling Professor of English at Yale. Bromwich sees three seasons in his mentor's long career. There were three phases in his career. I mean, the first would be Mm. him as a dissident, as a rebel, if you want to call it that, within the discipline of literary studies, keeping the good fame, the good name of the Romantics as a generation. And that's when he's teaching Romanticism and goes into his first work, and that's when I became acquainted with him, took his classes on American poetry and American romanticism. So Emerson, Whitman, Dickinson, leading up to Stevens, and he later would teach one or two contemporaries. That's the end of the first stage. The second stage is writing quite a lot about contemporary poetry and some authors, too. He did some pieces for the New York Review of Books in that period, say the 1980s. You know, he was beginning to be a guru and to be a public figure, a major voice of literary criticism. What people would look back on Lionel Trilling and say, that's what he was, would that we had some such authority now. And Harold became that for his generation. And he did it in a bigger way, Mm -hmm. a more generous way. You know, a lot of impressive work of, you could call it high popularization, intellectual journalism about literature. He was writing about his poetic contemporaries, people like Merwin, Merrill, Ashbery, Hollander, others at that time, the same time Helen Vendler held down the, you know, critical reviewing position at, I think, simultaneously, the New York Review of Books, the New Yorker and the New York Times. (laughs) She really had a monopoly then. But Harold was, I think Harold was a more, I will say, a more weighty and distinguished voice and he had better taste. So that's the middle part. Lots of interviews, lots of publicity about himself. And he started to think of himself as a great man. But he's still within literature very much. The last stage is what you know from the last roughly somewhere between 20 and 25 years when there's just a lot of popularization on a lot of topics, continuing to write about literature, some of what he writes truly good, some of it dispensing opinions of a kind I would have thought 
not quite worth his while, like saying Stephen King is a worthless writer, just a writer of penny dreadfuls, making very from on high negative comments on writers who were otherwise of, of good repute, like Doris Lessing and so on. The way I would put it is, he was no longer talking to people he thought were real readers in the way he was. He was talking to people who just wanted to know opinions a lot mm. of the time. But again, there too, there's a lot of good work. He put out a book, huge book called, I think, Great Poems of the English Language. And it's about 500 pages. It's full of poems, quoted sections of poems, and then Bloom's interpretations. And some of the interpretative matter in there is first rate. It's done over many years. I mean, there was always more of him than anybody, anybody really knew what to do with. What follows in Harold Bloom's wake? And it's not brand new just since his death. Who's the next Bloom? I don't know that that's a role anyone is equipped. Well, it is a role that nobody I know of is equipped to fill for just range of reading and decisiveness and ability to deliver judgments with some real pith and weight. There's going to be something missing in, shall we say, grandeur. I think that's true across the board, and, and it's not just associated with Bloom even granting his uniqueness. You know, if you read the journalistic outlets now, if you were to say, who's a fiction critic you trust, you can't even come up with a name. The poet and scholar Rosanna Warren grew up with a vision of Harold Bloom as closest of friends with her parents, both of them writers, Eleanor Clark, and the novelist of All the King's Men, who became U.S. Poet Laureate, Robert Penn Warren. But then she found her way to Harold Bloom on her own as a mentor and her friend to the very end. She spoke with us this week of a peculiar intensity of Harold Bloom in conversation around work and why it mattered so much long after illness had weakened the very old man in body. So my, in my experience, Harold was interested in, in winning a fight, so to speak. He was interested in the nature of the, the argument and what sparks would fly from it, what energy would come from the argument, what new ideas would approach. He, that, it's a principle of generosity there that I, I felt, and I think many of his students and friends felt. Just This is a, maybe a, a little side view, but for instance, visiting Harold even in these last years when he was ailing and and somehow physically frail, but not at all mentally or spiritually frail, he would say greedily, show me some new poems, show me some new poems. And he would read them with a fierceness of attention. So the, the point being, he was interested in, certainly he was interested in his own ideas and his own, I would see they were more visions and ideas at a certain point, but he also was interested in other people's and he wanted to see what people were doing and what people were creating. That's why agreeing or disagreeing wasn't the point so much as understanding that you were in a force field and the force field came from these works of literature. This is in a paragraph of Harold's in the American canon. It's on the, in the essay on, on Robert Frost. Uh, he's, he says, Harold writes, I am an experiential and personalizing literary critic, which certainly rouses up enmity but I go on believing that poems matter only if we matter. Mm. It's hard to distinguish Harold the teacher from Harold the friend, Harold the person, Harold the writer. It was all sort of one blazing, one blazing outsized persona. And I think his students who learned from Harold, one thing they learned was that they matter as souls, that literature matters as a spiritual conflagration and illumination, and that we have to take our reading with 
utmost seriousness, utmost seriousness, that it's not, in a sense, a school matter. It's way beyond school. He reminds, he's outsized in that way. He bursts the boundaries uh, institutionally and in somehow intellectually. He reminds me of a little bit of Robert Frost, who dropped out of two schools, Dartmouth and Harvard, but became one of the legendary teachers. And Emerson, who left the Unitarian Church, left his role as minister, but in a sense, you could say his writing was visionary sermons in some way. Mm. Um, so I think of Harold that way as kind of a, a gadfly, a deliberately uh, marginal, outrageous provocateur who makes people wonder how, how life matters, how they matter, and what literature might have to do with this. Rosanna Warren is professor in the Committee on Social Thought at the University of Chicago. Jennifer Lewin teaches in the English department at the University of Haifa in Israel. She took her Ph.D. at Yale and worked as right-hand Professor Bloom in teaching and writing. What did Harold's process have to do with fashion, one way or the other? And he was, in some sense, out of fashion toward the end. Yes, I think uh, when he started early uh, in the 90s talking about the school of resentment and new criticism and scholarship that in some sense disappointed him because it was a departure from what he had taught some of these very same scholars. He felt as though there was a kind of uh, a lack of understanding of what was important about literature, its aesthetic value, its ethical value, how it consoles us and comforts us in our loneliness. And I think his being out of step with literary fashions and trends in the academic world was something that he felt early on, almost from the beginning, but especially it got pronounced at that period. And I think until until the end of his life, he felt it acutely that these trends had kind of left the real work of appreciating and teaching others to love what we love, that it was leaving that process behind, those trends. I read him on his boyhood. I mean, less than, he discovered Hart Crane at nine and a half or 10. He wasn't quite sure. But he took flight, in a way, into poetry to get away from his loneliness. Yeah, I think he thought of the poetry that he taught, that he wrote about, as well as the other texts, as ways to kind of to cure himself of that feeling of loneliness. He saw the model of the life that his parents wanted him to lead, you know, growing up in in a household that that wasn't primarily literary, you know, he sort of moved into literature as his comfort, I think, his consolation for not having gone on to become a lawyer or a doctor or gone into one of these more traditional fields. Poetry consoled him and comforted him and provided him with friends. The texts themselves were like friends for him. The characters, Falstaff, most particularly, I think. Yeah, Falstaff, Cleopatra in Shakespeare, Don Quixote, these he thought of as a kind of um, vicarious way to enjoy adventure and life and to do so in a way that could allow him to experience those experiences but through the beauty of the, the words themselves. Because for him, literature was an attempt to cure the affliction of being alone, a feeling as though there was kind of lost world of your childhood, of the lives of your parents who are no longer alive, who you can't really talk to and commune with, of the fu- sort of fundamental loneliness of the human condition. 
that to him was a reason to read and a reason to share that reading with others. Mm. Um, so there's a few words in this article that, that he, he published in April. Our experience of a lost voice may come to us in solitude or in the presence of others, whether or not they are related to our past sorrows. When I was very young, I read poems incessantly because I was lonely and somehow must have believed that they could become people for me. That vagary could not survive maturation. Yet the quest persisted for a voice I had heard before, before I knew my own alienation. Over the decades, I learned to listen closely to my students for some murmurs of those evanescent voices. Thank you, Jennifer Lewin, David Bromwich, Peter Cole, and Rosanna Warren. And forever, thank you, Harold Bloom, for friendship, for my adult education, my experience of the generosity of genius. We shall not look upon your like again. Open Source is a proud member of Hub and Spoke, a collective of energetic, idea-driven podcasts, including Soonish, a show about technology, culture, and the future, from Hub and Spoke co-founder Wade Rausch. Check out his most recent episode, Future Without Facebook. You can find it at soonishpodcast.org, and you can hear all the Hub and Spoke shows at hubspokeaudio.org. Our show this week was produced by Connor Gillies, Adam Coleman, and the artist Susan Coyne. Thanks also to Glenn Alexander and Amy McDonald. George Hicks is our engineer. Mary McGrath is the sage in our gang. I'm Christopher Lighton. Join us next time for Open Source. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.